Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, my name is Kelly McFall, and I'm the host of New Books and Genocide Studies. In just a moment, you'll be listening to an interview with Abram DeSwan, author of The Killing Compartment. But this is the first podcast I'm posting for 2016, and as such, I wanted to take just a moment to offer some thanks. First of all, I wanted to say thank you to the 20-odd authors who have given generously of their time in talking about their books with me for this podcast in the past year. I also want to offer thanks to Marshall Poe, the founder and chief editor of the New Books Network, who has given enormous amounts of his time, energy, and attention in making sure the network has prospered over the past years. Finally, I want to say thanks to those of you who are listening. Without you, there's no reason to do the podcast at all. As 2016 uh, begins, I think it's going to be a good year for the channel. I already have interviews with Ron Suni and Timothy Snyder taped, an interview scheduled with Joshua Zimmerman, Bridget Conley-Zelkich, Stefan Erig, and others, as well as planned for special podcasts in the summer. So, I wish all of you a happy 2016, and let's get on to the interview. One word before we start. Skype was particularly wonky during my discussion with Abram, and we had to pick up and resume our interview several times because of dropped calls. I think most of them I've managed to splice in effectively, but you will notice once or twice kind of an awkward transition. So my apologies, and I hope that you listen to and appreciate the interview regardless. Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Today, I'm excited to welcome Abram DeSwan to the show. Abram is currently the Queen Wilhelmina Visiting Professor at Columbia and is Emeritus Distinguished Research Professor for Social Science at the University of Amsterdam. He's written books, articles, and reviews on a variety of different topics, and he has a list of honors too long to run through here. He's with us today to talk about his new book, The Killing Compartment, The Mentality of Mass Murder, published by Yale University Press in 2015. The book is a fascinating discussion of why societies decide to commit mass murder, but in particular, Abram reconsiders the recent consensus on perpetrators as ordinary men. It's a thought-provoking discussion, one that I'm looking forward to unpacking with him. So, with that, Abram, welcome to the show, and thanks for joining us on New Books and Genocide Studies. Well, I'm glad to be here and have an opportunity to talk about topics that have interested me for a long time. So, so maybe let's start there. Why, why don't you tell the audience just a little bit about who you are and, and how you came to be an academic and, and how you came to be interested in the topic of mass murder? Well, let me start with the topic of mass murder. Uh, basically, these mass exterminations and the Holocaust as the uh, negative culmination of so many episodes of annihilation uh, are in the back of people's minds because mm. Europeans and Amer- Americans feel that they belong to a especially civilized form of society and nevertheless <clears throat> they have to confront these episodes of barbarism <clears throat> in their history. And how can these two be uh, combined, that remains a great conundrum for many of us, and uh, genocide study in part is about this apparent contradiction between civilization and its barbaric side, its mm-hmm. dark side. So that would be said that why this theme underlies so much of European and American thinking. And then people have their personal histories with uh, mass annihilation. And obviously, uh, I'm not a victim of it, but I'm one of those survivors who at a very young age had to hide in Amsterdam for Mm. the 
Nazi police. I didn't know that. How how has that shaped your life? Uh, I don't know either. <laughs> it's not, never very clear in, to what degree. One feeling is it's good to be here and have survived. Uh-huh. Some people took me in hiding and I was never found or betrayed. So that's where my huh. friends. So there's a, <laughs> in my life a funny feeling of being very lucky. Mm. My parents also survived. Huh. Um, but it has affected other people differently, I guess. Yeah. So, so you're a sociologist by training, is that right? Yes, I started out as a political scientist, okay. a mathematical political scientist at that, with already done in my dissertation a history, uh, an interest in the historical side of things. The dissertation was a, on uh, and person coalition theory applied to European multi-party cabinet formations because mm. there several parties are negotiating for uh, to form a government. So you could have a mathematical approach, but I also had a long historical survey of all those coalition governments in Europe. That's how I started out. And you've written on a number of different topics. Yeah. Uh, why? Why now? Why, why? Why write a book about mass annihilation now? What, is, is is there something that happened in your life, or is this just the kind of end of the a logical uh, progression in your? Yeah, no, there is. There is. Uh, the book begins with a little uh, event. I have a much admired and much beloved uh thesis supervisor which in yeah. German they call a doctor father, your doctor mm-hmm. father. And in my case, Nico Freda was indeed a, a father figure. Mm-hmm. And he once called me up with the question he was a psychologist. And he said, uh you using a diminutive which nobody else I would allow to use. <laughs> uh why do people have such passionate feelings for other people on the other side of the earth, of whom they may not know a single individual, and nevertheless they are so have such strongly held convictions. And why? Where does this group think come from? Which, of course, is an impossible question. But nevertheless, <laughs> since my supervisor asked me, I set out and tried to answer it. And from one thing came another thing, and so one sort of stumbles from one theme into another. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is how I came into writing this book. So you define the subject as, as mass annihilation. Yes. Um, what What do you mean by that? <laughs> well, I steer uh, clear a little bit from genocide, uh-huh. because that is a real legal term, very complicated legal term with its own history. And uh, it sucks you into discussions whether something is or is not a genocide. And that is not the historian's or the sociologist's task to decide. It's for uh, judges and international Uh courts. Um, So I took a a term which is more a sociological term, mass annihilation. And first of all, that is asymmetric violence. It's about... Armed and organized men, almost always men, uh, exerting violence against unarmed and unorganized people, men and women and children. So it's very asymmetrical. Power is mm-hmm. very unevenly distributed. And then, in my case, it's also about face to face violence. I do not talk <clears throat> about aerial bombings. That's a different but related problem. And uh, there's always a state either directly involved or in the background condoning or even encouraging violence by, by militias and by thugs. So look for the states. And thirdly, it almost always happens before, after, or during wars, 
revolutions, civil wars, there's always the shadow of actual warfare. So this is, these are the phenomena I'm writing about. And then at each moment, is, they're very different, and there is, you must sort of try to decide whether this belongs more or less to a certain category. There's, there's really two interrelated questions, at least as I see it in the book, and, and you list these out. Um, and I think it makes some sense to look at them separately, although they're clearly tied together. And, and, and the first of those is why regimes resort to mass annihilation. Mm -hmm. I'd like to start this discussion. You, you, you write in the conclusion, and it's a re restatement of things you say in other parts of the book. You say, uh, then the quote goes, what is modern is not mass murder, but rather the embarrassment about it. Yes. Uh, unquote. Yes. What do you mean by yes. that? Well, that is, of course, a little bit polemical. I'm writing uh, about <laughs> things, but I'm also writing with and against other people. And uh -huh. one topos, which is very frequent in writing about mass annihilation, that this is the scourge of modernity mm -hmm. and that it is inherent in civilization. And all of that is a little bit true, and it's also a little bit not true. But mass violence and mass annihilation in a very asymmetric and massive way is of all centuries. Uh, mm -hmm. That is almost a, occurs and recurs time and again on incredible scale, partly for the simple reason that armies until, say, the 19th century, late 19th century, uh, simply wherever they went had to feed on the land. And that is a euphemism for burning the villages, taking, uh, robbing and plundering whatever there was, raping the women and killing the men. So there will always be a wide swath wherever an army went of, of destruction of, and violence. That was almost normal. And the, we know not too much about it, but the chroniclers who wrote about it exalted in it. They thought it was a great triumph. They exaggerate the number of casualties. And uh, this Spanish conquista, which was a very tragic and horrible episode, but it is one of the first episodes in which there was also a high-ranking opposition against all these killings. And increasingly it has been no, no longer something to be proud of, but to, to hide and to be shamed about. It's interesting, there are, <clears throat> there are Holocaust deniers, but there are very few people who exult and <clears throat> yeah. boast about the Holocaust. They're, they actually were. Eichmann was one of them. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's exceedingly rare that opposition about the, in the Holocaust literature are people who deny it. That's interesting. Hmm. Well, one of the things you say, you talk, one, so there's a couple of things you say in the book about the way in which um, the nature of killing and, and the nature of society has changed over time that has made mass annihilation um, maybe not different in nature, but different in character yeah. more recently. And one of the things you talk about is... Um, the widening circles of identification yes. and disidentification. Yes, yeah. Uh, well, there's one very simple fact which one must always keep in mind in thinking about human history, and that is that over a long period, the scales of social organization have enormously widened, enormously increased. Mm. We started out maybe 20, 30,000 years ago with groups of at the most 100 people, and now we're able to more or less effectively coordinate a billion people. Uh -huh. China is a more or less effectively coordinated society. And that's a fantastic increase in scale. And a typical nation state would be in the order of, say, 100 million people, and it functions more or less. So that is a, a, a very, like, very important given about human evolution. But that means also that the, the, the scale of identification, very simply the people you call we and the people you call they, uh, has enormously uh, increased. 
Americans have a feeling with the word America. Mm-hmm. Almost all Americans, they even say they're willing to, uh, willing to die, willing to fight for it. Huh? So that's a very emotional word. And it's on a scale of, say, 300 million people. And those Bolsheviks, those communists, another half billion or a billion, were very evil people. They were willing to fight them if necessary. So, and these are, you're not just talking about ideas, you're talking about intense emotions mm-hmm. on a vast scale. And that is paralleled by a different organization of violence. Initially, there were very few weapons, and men succeeded in monopolizing the use of weapons and excluding women from it. It's a very important little transition in history. And then increasingly, there are fiefdoms, kingdoms, nation-states, which accumulate the means of violence, more or less within one organization, and exclude the others from the use of it. So that means, on the one hand, disarmament, domestic disarmament. On the other hand, it means uh, interior disarmament. On the other hand, it means pacification. People live more or less without the threat of immediate violence. Mm -hmm. They can no longer afford to be so violent, especially young men can no longer afford to be uh, bellicose. And they do not have to fear it from one another. Those, those are the consequences of interior pacification. And at the same time, there is an enormous accumulation of the means of violence within the hands of states. And these states threaten one another with this accumulated uh, store of, of advanced weapons. America is somewhat of an exception to the United States because the domestic pacification has not resulted in effective disarmament of the citizenry. And that is one of the greatest uh, bones of contention in the United States, mm-hmm. that people do not want to give up their arms. Nevertheless, if you allow me, <clears throat> it's an almost incredible feat of uh, self-control that so few casualties are mm. caused by so many millions of weapons in the hands of citizens. So what looks like uh, very wild behavior is quite exactly the contrary. All those people have guns and somehow manage not to use them. All those people have deadly cars and somehow manage not to kill one another. That's the amazing fact. Uh Now you must settle for the everyday understandable indignation of <clears throat> road traffic accidents and, and, and <laughs> gun accidents, but that's a different side of it. In the yeah. long run, the amazing thing is the, the control of violence, also in American society. So, the, 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 we can say that the scale and the structure of violence, of the emotions, <clears throat> Uh, have both changed. And this is the background against which you can see uh, episodes of mass extermination occur. And still the question is, yes, why do they occur? So you... Well, let's back up just a moment. So, so you talk about identification, but one of, one of the things you talk about extensively in the book is disidentification. Yes. Is, it, is it automatic or, or necessary for this process of identification to be accompanied by a simultaneous process of disidentification? Yes, I have picked the word identification uh, because, as also... Uh, Roger Brubaker has pointed out, mm-hmm. it's an action word and it's a process mm-hmm. word. It's something you must do and you must keep on doing, identifying with people. Mm-hmm. And identity sounds like these little uh, these little card soldiers have hanging around their necks as an, an unalterable given which stamps you. Mm-hmm. And in fact, identity is 
the constant activity of identifying yourself. And that means inexorably, I think, that you identify yourself by saying, I'm not like these people. And these other people, you want to disidentify yourself, to emotionally, effectively, intellectually, morally distance yourself from. And you can do that in all sorts of ways. They're very innocent and they're very aggressive ways of disidentifying. But identification and disidentification are two sides of the same coin. Even if we would say we all have, we belong to the the uh, people who see humanity as one uh, as one family, you would disidentify from those stupid morons who don't see humanity as one and keep on hating <laughs> each other. You see, we would take the moral high ground uh, against those backward types. You point to to four different modes. And, and one of the things, and I should say, in, in, in this part section of the book, you talk about the way in which states compartmentalize society. And, yeah. and I want to hold off on that, but recognize that that's integral to your argument at this part of the book. But, yeah. but you go ahead to identify four different modes of mass annihilation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder if you can tell us what those are and, and maybe characterize each one a bit. Yes. Uh, well, you just mentioned sort of the, 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 the core term in the book, compartmentalization, yeah. mm-hmm. which is the idea that certain separations between people in a society become more acute, become sharper. Uh, the regimes people usually against the target people. Uh-huh. And that can occur on all levels, huh? on the general cultural level, and on, say, the institutional level, the level of the regime, which takes all sorts of political measures, uh, on the level of daily interaction, where we want to sort of avoid that kind of people, you don't want to be seen with them, and directly at the individual psychological level. So I have, if you want, a sort of total view of what happens in societies that's there towards destruction, that this separation process takes place on, on, on all levels of uh, living together. And then such compartmentalizing uh, societies uh, at an advanced phase uh, may choose, no, may end up in different forms of mass extermination. And indeed, there are, are four. Uh, one is the most obvious, the most familiar. I call it conqueror's frenzy. It's when a triumphant army, a conquering army, uh, suddenly realizes that its enemies have been disarmed, the population is defenseless, and they go on a killing spree. This happens very frequently on a very large scale. An example is the rape of Nanjing by the Japanese in China, or what happened behind the Eastern Front when the Nazi Germans marched on into Poland, Ukraine, and in Russia. Uh, it's also the form colonial expeditions that degenerate into mass annihilation uh, take. I'm afraid that in, in the past of many, many of these very civilized nations, such as my own, the Netherlands, such episodes have occurred, and indeed they have, and they're very often covered up. There's much, much denial when and shame involved with it. And sometimes historians have to deep dig to find out, even if there's complete liberty of research, such as in the Netherlands, never and never has there been written a professional study of the Ache <coughs> campaign, which was a murderous exterminationist campaign that occurred between 1873 and 1906 in northern Sumatra. The Dutch were on a rampage. Uh, So uh, this this is this kind of conquest frenzy occurs rather often. I would say it's the prime professional danger for victorious armies. 
that they may degenerate into these kind of frenzies. Then the second form would be uh, ruled by terror. That's also familiar. That's our vision of the Soviet Union under Stalin, China under Mao. Uh, and there, it's, violence is a nine-to-five job. You go to your office, you torture, it's five, you have a lunch break, then you torture again. It's five o'clock, really, I've got to stop work now. And then you come home, you say to your wife, well, I've had quite a day. I, we shot a thousand prisoners. And she says, well, here you have an extra uh, schnapps. I mean, this is the completely bureaucratized, regularized, routinized form of uh, terror, of intimidating a population. And in a way, that is what we're most familiar with. It's an image that has been evoked for uh, decennia in the decades in uh, America about uh, Soviet Russia, and not without reason. In fact, it's much wilder and more barbaric than it seems. But it has, and what is very important in both these forms is that both in the conqueror's frenzy and in the rule by terror, those, the, the actual violence is very far away from everyday life. People can say, I didn't know, I didn't know what our soldiers did in Aceh, in Sumatra. I didn't know what happened behind those high walls, although I always felt a little uncanny about it. It can be denied. And there are specialists who uh, exert the, the violence. Uh, who, uh, so there's a high degree of compartmentalization between the sides of destruction and everyday life. Although it is not completely waterproof, people suspect always suspect and they need to because in when there is rule by terror people need to know to suspect the government the regime wants them to suspect that something uncanny is going on and at the same so that they will be afraid and they need not know exactly what they just <clears throat> should keep on their toes they should ask themselves is it allowed uh, to sing a Western song in a pub. Well, I'd better not sing Western songs in pubs. Huh. That sort of thing. Huh? On the other hand, they should not know exactly what is going on, because otherwise somebody might hold the regime to account. So there is a, a gray atmosphere. And when you ask the question, for example, people in Nazi Germany, what did you know? And then there's the famous answer, Wir haben es nicht gewusst. We didn't know. On the one hand, yes, that's true. Although one author writes, they did not want to know what they knew, so that they could only knew, know what they needed to know. Mm. It's a gray zone. Huh? Uh, it's also a zone of sort of sleepishness. It's not so that you actively uh, try not to think, but somehow you manage not to think of it. Uh, that's called repression, both governmental repression and what psychologists have called the internal trying not to think of something. Uh, Sartre said to know what you do not know and not to know what you know. Huh. It's very difficult to talk about. It's very important. This gray zone of knowing <clears throat> or not knowing. So the good question is not what did you know, but didn't you know enough to be very, very worried about what was going on? And then, yes, everybody knew enough. Russia, China, Germany, etc. Then, uh, there is a third form of, of mass extermination, and that's maybe the most paradoxical. I have called it uh, the triumph of the losers. And it's about these regimes that, under the threat of imminent defeat by foreign power, they're at war, they're facing defeat, they intensify their, say, uh, 
genocidal uh, campaign towards an, an interior enemy. Uh, Rwanda is a very typical example. The 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 <clears throat> intrahamde, the, the uh, Hutu power militias, and the regime basically didn't do very much to stop the advance of the RPF Tutsi force that were coming in from Uganda from the north and marching on to the capital, Kigali. What they did was fight the civilian Tutsis in their own country and kill them by the hundreds of thousands. And very few actual Hutu uh, militias or government soldiers were trying to stop the, the onslaught of the invading Tutsis. It's very paradoxical. Uh, and I try, you try to understand these are often regimes which are into, it's now or never. Sure. It's them or us, it's all or nothing. Even if we lose this time from a foreign army, if we exterminate all the Tutsis, the world will be different. And one time we will have uh, a, a, a reign without these horrible anti-humans not even dehumanized, they're anti-humans. Uh, and the moment to make the decisive move, move is now. Uh, it echoes Hitler against the Jews. Mm. And indeed, in the later phase, the phase of the extermination camp, the Nazi regime was already confronted with, uh, especially the Russian armies, the Soviet armies advancing, and yet they Sifted off all trains and, and manpower and resources to continue the extermination of the Jews in Europe, uh, whereas they, at the cost of the the, the, the the demands of the actual military war, again it's the triumph of the losers, and it can only be understood with an idea that now, once and forever, we must exterminate these enemies of mankind uh, so that the world will be a better place for our race even if momentarily we lose a war. And it's, uh, Cambodia is another example where the <clears throat> Pol Pot's uh, Khmer Rouge regime kept on killing at just absolutely staggering rate whereas they, the Vietnamese armies were already moving in. In fact, they had provoked the Vietnamese armies to come into much weaker Cambodia, uh, and they kept on killing their, their, their uh, what they called the old people, the people of the urban society. <laughs> uh, anybody who looked as if he had gone to school, as if he was a teacher or whatever, was to be exterminated. So this is a very paradoxical way. It's, it's almost, but there's a, a sort of a primitive theory of history in it. This is the one moment, it's now or never, it's all or nothing, it's them or us. If you hear these three juxtaposed, uh, uh, be on your guard. People mm. are in a murderous mood. And then the fourth is something I think I sort of was lucky to discover because I work as comparative sociologist. I compare very disparate, very outlying episodes. And I was reading about what happened in Central and Eastern Europe after, just before and after the defeats of Nazi Germany. Uh, and I also read about what happened in 1948 when uh, Britain grew from India. India became independent in a design. And there was the secession of Pakistan, the separation of a Muslim nation and of a predominantly Hindu, but essentially a multicultural nation, India. And in both cases, the defeat of Germany and the uh, independence of India sent a signal to almost everybody on that continent that something very special was going on. In Europe, that was 
get even uh, with the, the Nazis, with the Germans, if that is at all possible. And, and in Central and, and, and Eastern Europe, the, the whoever spoke German was suddenly the subject of what you could call pogroms. Mm. The same happened on the Indian continent. Uh, a lar very large uh, pogrom in, in Calcutta reverberated across the nation and invited people in cities with a majority of, say, Hindus. The Hindus would sit out to, to chase away or to kill the Muslim minority. And, of course, the Muslims across the continent heard about that, and wherever they felt more secure, they would set upon the Hindus. In both cases, it happened with an almost incredible cruelty of a sort of theatrical quality. It would happen in the middle of, of uh, the town, visible to many people, that seemed to be completely spontaneous and uh, unorganized, in fact, it wasn't at all. In both cases, probably the local regime condoned or even encouraged it. I think the Polish and the Czech regime, for example, had a clear interest to have the Germans sent away in a humane and orderly fashion. That was the plan of the Allies back to Germany. Of course, it was extremely cruel. Uh, Carnivalesque, one author writes about it. A free-for-all. And I have called that mega pogroms. Concatenated pogroms on an entire continent. And for me, they are especially interesting because they're not very compartmentalized at first sight. Uh -huh. It happens in full view of every passerby. But there was more to it. You don't see who you don't see. And many authors forgot that. 90% of the people aren't there. They're just home. And there's a 17-year-old who wants to go there. He already has a stick in his hand, and his father tells him, you stay here. And he boxes his ears. This happens in 90% of the cases. So there is a self-selection of people who go there. They're not just everyone. And there is a special, the word carnivalesque was used, way of sort of, how should I say, arranging the setting and making clear that this is a very special occasion in which people do very special and extraordinary things, such as raping women. And, well, it's un literally unspeakable what, unspeakable what happens under those circumstances. It's a regression towards a sort of infantile, psychopathic cruelty uh, done by apparently mostly normal uh, adolescent and, and adult men. Uh, but again, it is arranged in such a way that this is a special occasion for special songs and special gatherings in which anything goes. And the regime, the police stand by if they don't actually encourage it. Militias participate, etc. This also happened against Germans in, in, in Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, some former Nazis or profiteers of the regime, people who had misbehaved, some Germans who had been in the country for centuries, and some German-speaking Jews returned from the camps. But they're not too selective in who they attack. Here the definition was German. And there it was either, it was the other faith, the Muslims, mm. the Hindus, or the Sikhs who got it from both ways and imposed it on both sides. So, so you, you started, you, you in some ways transitioned to that next big question in the book, which is why individual people rather than societies um, commit mass violence or come to participate in, in mass annihilation, or not. Yes. Um, and again, you talk about compartmentalizations, and, and, but, but I'd like you you talk about a, a situationist paradigm that exists now in, in, in the study of, of perpetrators. I wonder if you can talk about what that is. Yes. Well, I 
it's that's a polemical part of the book initially. Mm-hmm. Almost, I, I have I think a collection of more than fifty titles which go how ordinary people commit extraordinary violence under extraordinary circumstances. This seems to be a consensus in the field. Uh, the explanation of uh, extreme violence. And the idea is it is the situation, the circumstance that makes the man. And then almost invariably the next sentence is, you and I, under the same circumstances, might have done the same thing. Uh, First of all, I think there's a great lot of truth in it, more than most of us would like to realize. But let's look at it. First, it is what you call illogical counterfactual, because you and I are not in the same circumstances, so we don't know logically what you and I would do. The second thing is it's counterintuitive. Here we are quietly listening to the radio, and you're invited to imagine that you would kill naked men, women, children, shoot them, throw them in a ditch, uh, take the next round, marching up naked through the snow, line up, shoot them, their blood and brains might uh, spatter on your uniform, they fall in the ditch and you go, not just for an hour or a day, but for weeks and months at the stretch. That is unimaginable. You cannot just imagine that like some kind of moron robots uh, at the first order, you and I would do that kind of thing. So it is somewhat of a pointless statement. It at first seems to give an explanation, but then it evokes as many mysteries as it seems to explain away. Uh, Nevertheless, I think there is much truth to its conditions and do change people much more than you want to imagine. But there is also, to start with, self-selection. You don't see who is not in the picture. You don't see who is not being a torturer, but sitting at home uh, unemployed because he'd rather not join, join the police. You don't see the people who rather stay away from the, the uh, Tutsi massacres. Uh, And that's usually 90%. You see the people who somehow got themselves into it. And watch how I choose my words, get yourself into it. So yes, you get yourself into it, but somehow you happen to be into it. And then I compare that with a, uh, a vibrating sieve which sorts out small or big pebbles. It keeps on vibrating, and at the end, the small and the big pebbles have been separated by their relative weights. So in times of upheaval, there are many incidents in personal lives, and often each one of them sort of involves an element of choice. There's an element of choice in it, even if it might not look that way to the persons who are caught up in those, that stream of events. And certain people, like heavy pebbles, are sort of sorted out in the direction of the army, the police, the torturing ranks, the militias, uh, what have you, the people who are more prone to be selected for the killing work. And others sort of, yeah, to stay, keep, keep themselves out of it. Mm-hmm. And I think that that has to do with a personal makeup. And don't misunderstand me, I think personal makeup is in great part the result of earlier circumstances. It is not the opposite of social uh, uh, factors. It, a person is in great, great part the result of preceding earlier factors. So basically, what I'm saying is look at personal biography mm-hmm. as the outcome of preceding family history, etc., adolescence, etc. 
But that's very difficult because we know not much about perpetrators. First of all, brace yourself. Uh, mass murder is the safest job on the planet. <laughs> there is almost, if, uh, only when a uh, uh, genocidal regime is completely defeated will some of its perpetrators be brought for, before their judges. It's exceptional. Germany, Cambodia, which is a failure, Rwanda, which it's very serious about the persecution. Uh, and then they are not before sociological and psychological investigators, but before police interrogators and judges. And there, almost all those perpetrators started out saying, hey, look, I never knew what was going to happen. I just happened to get into this. And I have nothing against Tutsis, my my neighbor was a Tutsi, the butcher on the corner was a Jew, we got along with him fine, etc. It's always the same. So they didn't want anything, they didn't know anything, and they uh, had no strong feelings about it in the first place. But that is, of course, a mimicry which you need before your judges. And it's very understandable. So we see what we know is mostly from judiciary documentation, and it is, we see it through a, 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 a lens with a thick coating of self-presentation by these perpetrators who, in the role of defendants. So we do not know very much, and I do not know very much. Hmm. But reading, then there is an important conundrum, and that is, Veterans of war, as we know very well in the United States, may suffer the consequences up to suicide and psychosis uh, of sometimes not a few a year of engagement in war. The victims of uh, persecution and of the camps suffer a lifetime, and their children, sometimes even their grandchildren, show these the signs of the suffering their parents went through. We're familiar with that. So almost all we know about the perpetrators is from judiciary uh, documents and trials where they show a very specific side of themselves as know-nothings, irresponsible, denying human beings. On the other hand, it seems as if nothing affected these perpetrators. We know that veterans, even after one year of military engagement in war, can be severely traumatized. Even a special term for it, PTSD, and in America, it is, these veterans are, are very visible. Uh, and we know that the victims of extermination camps may suffer a lifetime severe psychological traumas, and even the children, even the grandchildren may be affected. All this is rather well known and investigated. But the perpetrators of mass extermination do not show any sign of per being perturbed by what occurred. They're just fine. No problems. They're good husbands, nice fathers, uh, sympathetic, hard-working colleagues, no problem. There's been research about the, the Nazi perpetrators. There is, they found not a single case of a perpetrator seeking pastoral or psychological help. Not one. So nothing is the matter. And that is a conundrum. How can it be that these people who... Uh, participated in unspeakable scenes of atrocity, do not carry any traces of it on the face. Well, there's one obvious answer. Unlike veterans and unlike the victims, they were not afraid. They were not constantly in a state of high, high anxiety for what mm. would happen. And that explains a lot. But still, I think there must be more to it that meets the eye at first sight. And there are 
quite, there are some indications that uh, probably there is massive repression of the perpetrator's past, but they're very affected at it. So I read as much as I could on the literature on, on, on perpetrators and the Nazi perpetrators are the, among the best researched category. And I came up with what I call informed conjectures. Mm. A, 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 the best possible guess giving the present available knowledge. And I think the, the conjecture would be that A, Yes, these people are in certain respects to a certain degree different from most other people who are not perpetrators. So it's a probabilistic, statistical distribution of gradual properties. It's not black and white. It's not they are like you and me or they're not like you and me. Mm -hmm. And the first respect is uh, they have a, a very low sense of agency. They generally tend not to see themselves as the actors of their own life. They do not feel responsible for decisions, they do not feel they did make decisions. And that's a very, uh, but that may also be an artifact of uh, what we know about them through the lens of the judicial process where they had to deny any kind of accountability or responsibility. The second is, they certainly do have a sense of moral conscience. And you can see that in their lives as husbands and as colleagues, and especially as comrades in, uh, in arms. <laughs> they're loyal to their, their comrades, they're obedient to their officers, and not just out of calculation. There seems to be a real moral sense there. But this moral sense is strictly limited to their own immediate kind, their family, their comrades, their officers. Anybody beyond that is beyond the sphere of any moral obligation. Anything goes. There is no sense of moral responsibility. That's very important. Restricted sense of conscience. And thirdly, very simply, they have no pity. And that has to do with a, a lower sense of, excuse <coughs> me, that has to do with a lower uh, empathy, the capacity to imagine what other people feel and a lower sympathy, the capacity to feel what these other people feel. Yeah? Uh, and therefore, they are pitiless. And again, there are two sides to that. They may have been brutalized in the course of their crimes, and that is very likely, and lost a sense of identification, of compassion in the course of events or they may never had much of it in the first place. We don't know. Both is, and both at the same time is the most likely outcome. So the kind of picture which uh, arises is one of a failed mentalization, as it is presently called in psychology, especially childhood, early childhood psychology. The capacity to have an inner life and to recognize the inner life of others, very, very, very basic capacity. And either it is a failed mentalization, or it is a process of dismantization, let's say brutalization in the course of all these cruelties they were allowed and forced to inflict. That is, I would say, what one can responsibly say about it hmm. against the background that circumstances make the criminal. But the criminal is not just anyone. He may be especially uh, 
has the characteristics which predispose him more than most other people to such a career. Well, it's a wonderful book, um, and 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 for our listeners, we, we're not going to have time to get into it today. But but one of the things uh, Abram does is a, uh, engage in a really kind of thoughtful, interesting, sensitive exploration of some of the uh, experiments uh, that are usually cited when. Um, uh, people talk about uh, context as, as being most important, the Milgram experiments and so on. So so you can go on and uh, get his book and, and, and look at that there. But but for now, we're about out of time. Um, and so thank you very much, Abram. I, I just have one last question for you, and that is, um, and I always end with this, is there a book or, or something that, that was meaningful to you, whether it's in prep preparing this book or earlier in your life, Something on the subject that that I should read this weekend. Uh, yeah, some of the books which have been most influential and which are the most revealing about what goes on are also almost impossible to to read. Mm. Uh, but I think one book stands out, even though it's not at all a recent book, by Christopher Browning, Ordinary Germans. Even though I disagree to some degree with his conclusions on why those German men did what they did, uh, it's interesting. I'd say Chris Brown, Ordinary Germans, the book is called Ordinary Men. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly my criticism. I think he writes about Ordinary <laughs> Germans. <laughs> uh, so, this, this book by Christopher Browning also presents uh, historical evidence, which for me is the hardest to uh, assimilate in my own approach. It's counter evidence to what I have to say, and therefore it's very important, because in this field, you must consider the counter evidence. That is always the most important thing for social scientists, not to close their eyes for what goes against their ideas, exactly concentrate on that. And Browning, in writing about what he calls ordinary men, presents very strong data, which somehow I must try to account for. And I can, to a degree, by saying precisely this, look, these were not just ordinary men. These were people who went through the experience of the First World War, the terrible chaos of the Weimar Republic, the horrible, the most vile propaganda that mankind has ever seen during the Nazi era, and then were drafted to become executioners, which initially they didn't know, but which many of them did with varying degrees of willingness behind the Eastern Front for sometimes years at a stretch. So that is still one of the most, how would you say, puzzling and unsettling books I know about uh, the uh, about the perpetrators of extreme Nazi violence. And more recently, well, I would have to think what uh, I think very important but not so recent is uh, Hochschild about the Congo. Adam Hochschild, mm -hmm. uh, the ghost of King uh, Leopold, because it shows what civilized European nations, like in this case Belgium, uh, were capable of. So that is a, a, a still a very important book. And then maybe you should also realize that a non-book, a non-existent book, a book that should exist, it's a book about the Dutch, in, I mentioned them in Aceh, Northern Sumatra, oh, yeah. because the fact that this book isn't there says something about repression in a country without repression. Why isn't huh. that book there? That's very strange, because any PhD student who would write a good uh, dissertation about it would probably already be praised all, all around. So why isn't it there? What happens? How, which mechanisms? And in this case, it's not the police, it's not censorship. Uh, it is just, well, let's not talk about it so long ago. Anyway, they're not very good data. 
uh, you'll get lost in all sorts of polemics. How does it work? How does it work that it's still so difficult in America to get an overall view of what happened to Native Americans? Why is it still so contested? At least there is talk about it, but it's very difficult to get it in focus. Uh, so it is hard to think about these things and to, to uh, cut through the denial, both in, in not wanting to know or dismissing it as unimportant or simply denying the truth of it. Well, I have to say, we, we have a number of, I know there are a number of PhD students who listen to the show, and so perhaps one of them has just kind of sat straight up in his chair and had the light bulb go off in his head and now has a dissertation project. <laughs> but I want to say, we've run out of time, so thank you so much for being with us, and um, I hope somewhere down the line um, we'll have a chance to have you on the show again. It would be a renewed pleasure. Excellent. Take care. Thank you very much. You've been listening to an interview with Abram DeSwan, author of The Killing Compartments, The Mentality of Mass Murder. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. My next interview will be with Ronald Grigger Suni, author of They Can Live in the Desert But Nowhere Else, A History of the Armenian Genocide. Until then, thanks for the download and have a great one.